Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the weekly podcast in which I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all well. Feels like a long time, but I'm so happy to be back. And thank you all so much for listening. I've got a little bit of housekeeping before we get into today's episode. If you don't follow me on Instagram, I'm at Margie Namora, and you should definitely come and say hi. But you won't have heard the exciting news that we're recording the first ever live episode of Desert Island Dishes on the first Saturday in February, which is so exciting and a little bit scary. And I would absolutely love it if you came along. I'm going to pop the link to buy tickets in today's show notes. And you can also find it on my Instagram highlights. There are only a few tickets left, so grab them while you can. And I can't wait to see you there. I'm also delighted to be able to tell you that this episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Robert Welch. This is the first time I've taken on a sponsor and it was really important to me to only work with brands and companies that I genuinely already admire and use myself and that I think will be of benefit to you guys listening. So this is a bit of a dream really and the good news is that they've got 20% off their Camden cookware range at the moment until the end of January and they're offering Desert Island dishes an extra 10% off on top of that. Now listen, I'm no mathematician, but that's a pretty huge discount. All you've got to do is use the code DISHES10 at checkout on robertwelch.com. That's DISHES and then the number 10. I think I've got the whole of their Camden cookware range and it really is great. So thank you so much, Robert Welch. And if the new year isn't the perfect time to overhaul your kitchen and throw out those grotty pans with burnt bottoms, I don't know when is. Now, without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Tom Kerridge. Tom is a three-star Michelin chef. His pub, The Hand and Flowers in Marlow, was the first pub to be awarded two Michelin stars. He's been in the business for 27 years, and my goodness, has he done a lot of things. His second pub in Marlow, The Coach, also has a Michelin star. He has a butcher's slash pub, and last year he opened his first London restaurant, Kerridge's Bar and Grill, at the Corinthia Hotel London. As if this wasn't enough, Tom has written best-selling cookbooks, appeared on and hosted many TV shows. He started a food festival and has a catering business. The cherry on the top is that The Sun describes him as the culinary master. Metro has said he is a national treasure and GQ says he is a human sunbeam. Welcome, Tom. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, that's quite, I forgot I did all of those things. Yeah, I know. Well, I wanted to ask what feels better to hear the incredible things you've achieved or to hear the amazing things people say about you personally? Oh, no, no, no. To know that make businesses work and make sure they're all right, not what people say. Like, like I, whether they're compliments or bad things, 
things I'm not I like compliments I don't take very well bad fit I probably take bad things better than compliments <laughs> to be honest I'm getting that impression right yeah, now I feel yeah. like I've embarrassed yeah 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 it's, it's like straight away when someone says that it's like oh my god no don't like I'm a bloke from Gloucester that cooks that's it you know very modest but I just I think it's very reassuring when you realize that the old adage of the nice guy finishing last just isn't true and you know you can be a really nice person and do really well in life I think that's very reassuring yeah uh, yes, I, I I do 100% agree with that. But you also do need to have drive and ambition. And that, I, I mean, I know we were talking about briefly before we press go, but it was about personal ambition and competitiveness. So when people say people aren't nice guys and they do well in business and you see people do well, and that's because they're trashing everybody in the way, kind of maybe, but also they need to push themselves. And I think, you you know, to you have to have a personal drive to achieve stuff, but you you can still be really nice whilst doing it to, yeah. everybody, to everybody else. Just be bad to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> be bad to punish yourself and make yourself do more. You can't be a nice pushover, I guess. No, exactly. Yeah, we, I, I mean, the best way I describe particularly the Marlowe setup is it's a very polite dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I heard that Marco Pierre White was a really early influence on you when you were just starting out at the age of 18. But I can't imagine you're like Marco in the kitchen or are you? Do you have a kitchen persona? No, not shouty, screamy. Definitely not. But I do... I do spend a lot of time mugging people off, trying to get the best out of them. Like you drive, I, fi- I find a way of, instead of like giving people massive bollockings, it's better to kind of like drive them on, have a go at them, but make it in a fun kind of sense, like to the point where they just feel embarrassed that they've messed up like that. And, and like everyone else is having a bit of giggle at them rather than creating this dark cloud atmosphere. Kitchens are very reactionary and they're very adrenaline fueled and they work, Professional kitchens have to, they, you have to have that energy level to, cause service is, is busy. But that's what makes you love it as a, as an industry is, it's what's, it's right on that fine line between being pushed with adrenaline and getting things out there. That, that's what creates that exciting and wonderful environment that chefs fall in love with. So as long as you get that environment stays and it doesn't cross the line, then, you know, that's how kitchens should be. They, they're a great, vibrant, fun place, but they're also incredibly disciplined. And at the end of the day, you have to remember that you're cooking for people paying guests you know this isn't just cooking for fun this is it's a business and it's a real job yeah and yeah you're so right i think getting the most out of someone by embarrassing them is so much more effective than making them scared yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you never get the best out of anybody by being scared and it doesn't matter who you are or how you know you can encouragement is the first first and foremost you know, yeah that, that's the one thing training and encouragement closely followed by embarrassment yeah i, I quite i quite like the, the 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 general ribbing and mugging off of people in kitchen like i mean it's the best way and it, it's that kind of banter is, is a great space to be in it creates a fun environment I mean, it means that everyone's having a laugh. It's, you know, the sort of people that generally find themselves in kitchen are the sort of people that like banter and like, and it's a, it, it creates a great space. And when you spend so many hours and so much time within each other's company, you need to be able to get on and banter. It doesn't really matter whether it's kitchens or any space. Most of the time it revolves around people taking the mick out of each other. Like yeah. that's how you get food a day. Like yeah. everyone <laughs> having a laugh and taking a mick out of each other. And, you know, kitchens is just like that. They're just like next level. Oh, it sounds fun. From everything I read, your mum sounds like a truly amazing woman. And I know that you dabbled in cooking from a really young age. So let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So, I mean, there could be so many different things that 
I could touch on, but actually it's a, it is, it's a corned beef and English mustard crusty roll. And, and it's kind of like, it's not really something that it's not something that was cooked or done, or, but it was something that I would, we would have Saturday evenings would be corned beef with English mustard and really lovely, crispy, crusty rolls whilst watching the pink panther on the telly. And it's, that's a childhood memory. And that's where food is amazing because that's not about the dish but i do remember the rolls being crusty like really nice and warm and the corned beef being delicious and english mustard and i think as a young kid that started to like english mustard i look back at that and i think actually that's a big flavor and a big taste that's a really big flavor yeah so, so i think it's one of those first things of crossing over into adult like taste buds but also still you know it's a comfort food and it's about watching the telly so it's it's all those sort of things that feel like a special treat on a on a saturday evening and that's so that's kind of like a that that's a childhood memory dish most definitely yeah that sounds lovely i read something where you said that you didn't know if it was on purpose or just for practical reasons but that your mum taught you to make ragu the day before you eat it and of course she's right as it tastes so much better the longer you leave it does cooking run in your family or are you a bit of an anomaly? No, yeah, there's no cooking in my runs in the family. My mum worked for the local education department and then in the evening she'd wash up in a in a pub. There's not, yeah, the cooking wasn't there and it's not something that happens. But I think, but also, see, cooking and being a chef, they're two very different things. Being a chef is the job and that's the career. Cooking is something that you do as being part of that job. Yeah. So, and then food becomes an understanding of flavor profiles and all that sort of, but that's part of the job and, and the way that it moves forward. So, I mean, it's people who love food and want to have a food background, people like food stylists or people who write lovely recipes for magazines or people who do food photography or people, who, those sort of, those guys are, are people that whose food has been a huge part of their life. Chefs, uh, it's very different. Food is part of the process of the life and the career that they've chosen. That's such an interesting distinction. Yeah. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned it. it's a ragu. It's spaghetti bolognese. And, it, and it's that understanding of um, sweating down onions and garlic first, so the natural caramelization and the sugars that come out of the, of the onions and the, with the sweetness so that you burn off the acidity, the bits that make you cry with the, when you chop an onion add in uh, the rest of your vegetables, celery, carrots, and all that sort of stuff. And then then the mints and the, the tomatoes and tomato puree and, and, and then leaving it to cook and then adding your mushrooms, not right at the beginning, towards the end, because otherwise they just disappear. And, you know, just all of those sort that was that was one of the first, that is the first dish that I learned to cook that my mum taught me. And it was, you know, my mum's not, a trained chef or she enjoys, enjoys cooking, but it isn't something she does a lot of, but this is one of the dishes and, but we would make it the day before we'd eat it. So that, that point of it being stood still and being left to mature for a day was a bit, was a big difference. So it, it does drive flavor forward most definitely. Well, and what does she think of what you're doing now? She must be so proud. Yeah, I think so. Again, see, that makes me a little uncomfortable to think. <laughs> Sorry, like, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, she says she's super proud. I like, to be honest. But that she so, taught you to cook. I mean, that's quite a claim to fame, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it is. But the world is so, that I live in now is so far removed from the world that we grew up in. We grew up in a tiny little house, me and my brother, me and my mum in, in Gloucester. And, you know, that, that moved to now, you know, I'm quite fortunate. We've got a, a, a lovely 
big house with a nice car and a, you know, and a young son that runs around and I live in Marlow and I've got four, four business, five business, six. <laughs> I've got quite a so few businesses. businesses uh, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, well, I got four in Marlow and then one in London and, you know, and then when you talk to your mum about, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, this process here and there's a hundred members of staff there and the wage bill across the company is this and this, like, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's so far removed from anything that we've come from. So for my mum, to get her head around it is just a massive step like yeah. into understanding the realms for me to get my head around yeah. it's a massive step let alone my mum so but she is she is proud of it but it is so far removed from anything that where we first started from as a you know when i was 15 or 16 leaving school it's just amazing i really love something that you said um when talking about experimenting with food as a child i'm going to read a quote from you yeah you said i would stick a bit of curry powder in the baked beans and try to make it taste different it was the first time i got something back in return for the effort i put in you didn't get that at school you wrote an essay and that was just it nothing in return to discover that feeling it must have been so exciting was it an inevitability that you would then go to catering college having just sort of discovered this feeling no i don't think it was but it was something it was is the point of practicality the point of actually using your hands and, and doing something i'm much more of a doer than a that, like and i say in that i mean in that statement it's not 100 percent true because it does say there that i wrote an essay and handed it in i don't think <laughs> i ever did that so you know the idea of um it's not i was ne i did love school like i did absolutely love it but it was a great place to hang out with your mates not somewhere from a learning point of view uh, schools particularly back in the 80s were much more based on academic results yeah and you know i'm for me it was much more about going out there and doing stuff you using your brain and working and, and trying to not it wasn't not not about thinking but thinking things through but not thinking it and putting it down on paper they were two very different outlooks and so i was always going to do something that was practical and doing and i was always very confident that i would be all right like whatever i did i thought well i'll be all right at it because i know i can work hard in whatever it is that i choose or whatever it is that comes along and i was very fortunate as an 18 year old the catering industry found me like it's if none of this had ever happened um, and for whatever reason you'd never discovered cooking what do you think would have been your plan b because i know that you did you dabbled in acting didn't you yeah kind of very <laughs> briefly i was i went like i went i left like i said i left school at 16 between 16 and 18 i didn't do like anything so i didn't <laughs> do any further education and i didn't i didn't i just bossed about me mum called this mid dos years <laughs> and, and and i ended up going to a youth theater and well, so I was in that youth theatre, an agent came along and and asked someone to be on their books, and I and and then asked if I would, and I I was like, yep, sure, no worries. And then two weeks later, I was filming a Christmas special in Miss Marple, so it was quite a bizarre. <laughs> it was one of the another one of those moments where I said yes to stuff and things happened, but it really wasn't. It really wasn't me, and I, like I didn't enjoy. I like I enjoyed doing stuff because it was. I said yes to things, and I liked. I like getting paid for doing something that wasn't that didn't feel like a job yes but at the same point it wasn't something that i i fell in love with at all so so like i ended up wandering into a kitchen as an 18 year old to wash up and after that it was suddenly became like it was i, I knew then that the hospitality industry was the place that i wanted to be at that's so cool so like a, a real light bulb moment yeah well it's just very fortunate that you walk in there and you know they're amazing places kitchens and hotels and and it's full of a band of people that are all trying to do something but the 
you know, and I, I like the juxtaposition between a, a, a hotel being very super posh and the people that stay in there are spending loads of money. It's lovely. But actually behind the scenes, the guys that are cooking the food and, and taking the rubbish out are like, I mean, we'd never stay in the hotel. You'd never afford it. So I quite, I, I, I liked the, how, how does this work? Yeah. Like, you know, you, no one here is a, like, no one's on a level. It's like, it's all over the place. And then all the people that were involved and in, in the kitchen, they were all very, very, very different. Like lots of different backgrounds and people and, and a lot of people, like almost like a bunch of social misfits that turn up into one space. That's kind of how kitchens work and they're, and they're great places to be. That's such an interesting way of thinking about it, about the clientele and then the people in the kitchen. I just remember when I was working in the kitchen, I've like, we were cooking this amazing food, but then we just go home and have takeaways. Yeah, like, that exactly. Was, yeah, yeah. That was felt a, like such a juxtaposition. Yeah, well. there's a, there's plenty, there's plenty of young 19 year old chefs who tell you their best meal they have is from the fried chicken shop on the yeah. home. You know, it's <laughs> so kind weird. of like, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're making like the most amazing food. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. I mean, that's such a difficult question to answer because they're so. There are so many different spaces and places to eat at, and there are so many different, so many different um, things that make it the best dish. Like the environment, the people that you're with, the the the, the food, the, the all sorts of different elements. If I was going to go for probably the best meal I've ever eaten, would be undoubtedly um, eating at the Fat Duck. So the Fat Duck is like Britain's most amazing three-star restaurant run by Heston Blumenthal and it's it's phenomenal. And I've had some incredible, amazing meals. I'm very lucky. It's not that far from our house. And, you know, I've been, I, I probably go maybe once every two years. And it's like, it's a, and it's amazing, wonderful, incredibly immersive and very, very special experience. It's almost, and it's nowhere near as out there as everyone thinks if you haven't eaten there before, but it is quite a crazed space that you go into. It's a beautiful, sim- very simple and very elegant restaurant. And it, it it's almost like, I, I suppose, a theme park of a restaurant that you go there, you just enter fat duck land and you just go through this journey that's of wonderful cooking and amazing and amazing food. So probably the best meal is Heston's fat duck. The best dish I will go to an aubergine dish that I had in a back alley somewhere in Singapore at about four in the morning. And that was amazing. What and was it? Uh, it was a, like a fried aubergine with lots of chilies and Singaporean like style spicing. And uh, it was, that's to do with company. So it's four o'clock in the morning in a back alley sat with a load of chefs that, that after being out there working, it was just, that was an incredible dish and an, an amazing place to be. Oh, that sounds amazing. So you really did work your way up working in several different restaurants as a commie and then a chef to party before getting your first sous chef break working with Gary Rhodes. Tell us a bit about that. Would you say that Gary was your biggest mentor? No, I enjoyed working with Gary, but not biggest mentor. I think what happened was I worked previously for a, a guy called um, Stephen Ball, who was one of the first British chefs to win a Michelin star many years ago. And he had three restaurants in London and I opened one for him. I was there from the opening to the closing for about four years on St. Martin's Lane. And the head chef there was a guy called John Bentham who had worked with head chef for Stephen before and was head chef there. And then me and John left Stephen Balls when it closed there to go to Gary Rhodes' head chef and sous chef team. So I learned more, much, I learned so much from John 
which was like every day he would change the menu, he'd change dishes, he was full of energy. He was like one of those guys that has ants in his pants, can't sit still for a single minute, and he's always always changing. And his food knowledge was absolutely phenomenal. So I learned so, so much from John. And then going to Gary's, the one thing that Gary's did teach you was simplicity was very, very good. So put in three or four things on a plate rather than overcomplicate it. So I, I did learn a lot working for Gary, but it was under the tutorage of John, which was, which was huge. Mm, that's so interesting. I, like, I guess it's so important as a young chef to train under lots of different people, isn't it? Because you learn so many different things from each of those amazing. Yeah, you, you can. I, I, it's a transient career and it's probably very good from a young chef to have worked with probably three or four good chefs for then you to be able to piece together your career for by the point that you get to being head chefs. Chefs that move every year and go, you're not actually learning much. All you're just doing is stealing people's recipes. You need to be in places for longer to understand heart and soul and reasoning and how things grow. But yes, you do You do as a chef, if you're looking at being a head chef with plenty of knowledge and have seen many things, yeah, over the period of a 15-year um, career, you need to have moved before you open your, or become your first head chef, take on your first head chef role. Yeah. And the hospitality business, I've heard you say that if you go into it for the money, then you're in the wrong job. Obviously, as the years have gone by, it has become this very lucrative career choice. But do you think in a way it's the kind of thing where success maybe only really happens when you don't set out for that to happen because the foundation and like the true passion for what you're doing is there and it's sort of the right reason yeah i think that's the same with anybody who's successful they, they've ended up in a business that they, they love doing first and foremost i think anybody would tell you the same thing you have to you have to not go to work you have to have a way of life yeah and that's it and that's the from the moment you wake up and the mo you dream of your job you know you, you go to sleep dreaming of dishes or what you're going to do or how you're going to grow it is what you are not you go to work and then do something else at a weekend you mm -hmm. know you are that person all the time and that fact you ha if you're going to be that person and be that successful at something then you have to love it because if you don't love it then you're never going to put that energy level in. It's not going to become you. And through hard work, no matter what industry you choose to, or what career you choose to go in, through hard work, it will repay eventually. I, like I, I'm convinced of it. But, you know, I'm always of the mindset that I should be somewhere else. I always feel that I, I need to be doing something else. I always feel that there's no, there's never a day off. I've, I do, there's never, uh, oh, it's Sunday morning, let's just sit down and watch it bit of telly like that doesn't exist there's always there always has to be something to do there's always something to do it's like the saying and um, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life when the reality is that actually that means you'll probably work every day of your life <laughs> like yeah you'll never stop working a hundred percent and then when we opened our business i remember my father-in-law who's who's just sold his business and he 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 made he'd done very well. He made loads of money in the eighties and then he went bankrupt and lost it all. And he didn't rebuild a business and he's only ever worked for himself. And I remember the day that we opened the business, he said, come on, jump on in the water's warm and you now own your own business. And I was like, thank you. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Jim. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. And it's, and it, and, but it's never gone away because you can't get out of the water. And now you're in like yeah. what well, every single penny is invested when you open up everything, everything, everything you ever own is invested in something. And it suddenly becomes quite a difficult that you can't get out now you're in so you just got to do it so uh, i i mean there's a little bit of me that regrets it because you go oh my god wouldn't it have just been easier to be earning 25 grand a year and then you know how much money you're going to earn at the end of every month which means you can live in that flat and you can do that or do whatever that would be nice 
instead of going, right, let's risk everything, every single thing that we've got and open a business and not get paid. Yeah, it's super stressful. Yeah, it is super stressful, but it is amazing. And, and I have, I am incredibly lucky that we've done all right with it. We've worked hard and I've backed myself and you you find your own strengths and play to your strengths and don't, don't deviate, just go with what you know and, and, and keep and just relentlessly do not stop. Yeah. I mean, and it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, it's all right. Phew, okay. It's all right. Yeah. No, it's great. Right. I mean, I'm not, I mean, it's all right. And, and now it's every day. You never feel that it's not going to go wrong every day. I go, Oh my God, what happens if we do this? Oh, this is going to go wrong. And that's going to happen. Like every day you're constantly worried that people aren't going to turn up or you're yeah. constantly worried that something's like, it's all, always. I guess it's the same kind of thing as imposter syndrome where you, you always kind of feel like, Oh, why is this happening to me? Like, do I deserve this? Am I the right person for this? I think it's comforting to know that however successful you are, I mean, I know I'm going to embarrass you again, but you're Tom Carriage and you still have worries and doubts about what you're doing. I think that's going to be comforting to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I constantly feel like it's a massive blag. Like, <laughs> I, like I constantly think, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, when are they going to find out? How, how have I, yeah, yeah. How have I ended up here? Like, how have I, and, and then you, and then you take a deep breath for a minute and you think about it and go, hold on a minute. Like I was, I was the guy cooking two Michelin stars. I de- like, I've done that. I know how to do that. I, I've done it. And you go, okay, that's down through dedication and hard work and learning a craft and, and working very hard and always being respectful and driving it forward and being, you know, all of those sort of things you have to, you have to remind yourself, but I do just think, oh, like how I look back at, leaving school at 16 and now 45 going i have absolutely no idea how that's happened well if it's any comfort i don't think anyone else is looking at you wondering how it happened <laughs> let's, well, i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the fourth desert island dish and you may not have been asked this question before in an interview but tom carriage what is your favorite sandwich uh, we mentioned the childhood one and that was a sandwich but actually I had an incredible sandwich at Cat's Deli in Ooh. New York. So I don't know if you know it. Like, yeah. so the, the salt beef sandwich at Cat's Deli, which is uh, like amazing. It's where they filmed uh, where Harry met Sally, like that, you know, that mad scene. So it's kind of like, it's a great, but it's, it's a, I love the idea of the like amazing salt beef with pickles and rye bread and, and, and like a, an American style mustard on it. And like, for me, that's amazing. And there's sauerkraut if you want it. And like all of those sorts of, I love that kind of, almost like Jewish like food crossover into into mainstream street food in New York I think is is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Do you eat a lot of sandwiches? No, I don't. I'm a bread swerver. I'm a I'm, I'm low on the carbs yeah. so I try I'd, I'd love An to. Open sandwich? No, well I'd love to. I I love the salt beef with yeah. plenty of mustard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very cool that that was made famous by that film and yet the food lives up to the hype. Yeah, like the that's cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about how this happened, because the moment that you opened The Hand and Flower, at that stage, you had a decade of experience under your belt. You'd worked for some amazing people. You were in your early 30s and you and your wife, Beth, decided back in 2005 to open a pub. How did that come about? Was having a place of your own something that you'd always dreamt of or... Yeah, how did it happen? No, not really. I, it was again one of those things that I, I worked as a chef, and 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 I got to an age where I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. And I wanted my first head, proper head chef position. I'd been the sous chef for quite a while in in Michelin star restaurants in London, and, and was thoroughly enjoying it. But I thought maybe it's about time that I got a grip and tried to do it for myself. And there was a we moved out of London and moved to Norwich, where there was a 
a restaurant called Adlard's, which has a, had a Michelin star, and I, I went and cooked there for eighteen months. So I, for me, it was be, the first head chef position. I won a Michelin star, kept a Michelin star. It was like great, you know. And I was, I was twenty nine years old, and I was very and I was very pleased and proud of the fact that I'd done it, and that was great. And then, and then it was a bit weird. I got a, a, it kind of like I wasn't quite sure what to do next because I was like, okay, well, I'm not. I'm just about thir- just turned thirty, and then I've got a Michelin star, and I've done a quite. Where, where am I going? What am I doing? This isn't my business. This isn't, I wasn't a hundred percent happy living in um, Norfolk, having done 10 years in London and going, okay, how do I, how do I, I need to get back into that energy level. I need to get back into that um, vibe and that space. So Beth, who's like never really worked for anybody in her life. Cause she's it, an amazing sculptor. Yeah, isn't she, she is. Yeah. She works for herself and she's, she worked as a, as a technician on TIG and MIG welding for Sir Anthony Caro, who's a major, major artist. And, but she always makes her own work and had always made her own work. So we were like, well, I mean, Beth was like, if you're going to go and work 1900 hours a week back in London, we, we may as well do it for ourselves. So let's find somewhere. So it was like, okay. And we, we were, we were originally going to open a restaurant in North London in Crouch End where um, we still had a flat. Um, and that fell through about three weeks before it was going to open which was a bit of a blessing in disguise, really. Like, I mean, well, obviously. So stressful (laughs) at the time, but I can Yeah, pretty stressful, but then you go, okay, well, yeah, everything happens for a reason. So then we, so then we, we we went for dinner at a a pub called the Trouble House in Tetbury in Gloucestershire. So I took my mum there, which it it was just amazing. You walked in this pub, had a Michelin star, but it was serving beer and people were walking around in jeans and trainers. And it was like everything removed from what people assume Michelin star restaurants are. It was the exact opposite. It was comfortable. It was friendly. It was smiley and it was nice. And the food was great. And I was like, of course, this is it. We we need to do a pub. We need to do a pub, Beth. That's what we need to do. So we, we went straight back and started looking on websites and trying to find something. And, it took about 18 months, but we found, we found the hand of flowers. And from there it was just like, right, well, let's go. We, we risked everything. I mean, to be fair, I took loads of money out on a credit card. I told the bank I was going to extend the house and then didn't, and, and then <laughs> spent the money on the pub. And like, it was all like, it was just like, like I blagged it. I mean, it was just a blag. And then. But that's what you've got to do at the start. Isn't 100%. It? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've got so many questions because you took the leap from being a chef to basically being an entrepreneur and business owner. And there are so many things that come with that. I guess being a head chef in lots of the establishments that you've been in, you'd kind of picked up on bits and bobs, but there must've been so much that you didn't know. Did you feel like you were throwing yourself into the deep end? Yeah, hugely. But like, I don't, and I still live with the same thing in my head. Now I don't want to get to 70 and go, what if? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, well, I had this opportunity or what, what, what if I don't, I don't, I just don't want to do that. I think it would be the just worst. be the worst. So you just go, so let's do it. I mean, what, what's the worst thing can happen? You lose all the money. You lose all your money in the flat that you own. And then you do, you go, I mean, is it that bad in the first place? Like really? Probably not, you know, and it's, di- it is slightly different then because I was, 30 years old and we had no kids and it was like like so you can have a go at risking stuff do you know what i mean you can you can have a go and it's different than when you're 40 or 50 to then start going because you've got securities and responsibilities that have suddenly become quite yeah. different <laughs> but uh, you know at that point it's like well let's risk it let's just do it i mean like really what's the worst thing can happen and but yeah you suddenly go on a sharp learning curve when, when it comes to business because you go from doing 
you go from food and just cooking as a chef to actually worrying about business and restaurant. And that, and that's very different as well. Yeah. So, so, so you worry about bums on seats and how the phone ringing and, and then things breaking and repair bills and like all of those sorts of things suddenly become apparent that you don't really pay attention to in the first place when you're, when you're a chef. Definitely. And, and it was only a year after opening that you got your Michelin star. That's amazing. Can you remember it? Or what stands out more, the first one or when you got the second one and became the first pub to get two stars? The second one is undoubtedly the greatest thing that we've achieved as a team and as a, and as a, a chef from a personal point of view, because it's not, I mean, two star level is I mean, there's over a hundred places with Michelin stars and, and that's, you know, it's one of the chef's proudest and most amazing moments winning a star. And I, I found out that was at the point where they didn't used to do an awards do, or it didn't used to, you have to wait till the guidebook came out or. What's so you literally like wait for the book to You wait for the, the book to come out, but in, in 2005, they would release it online. So on the day that it comes out, they release it online. And I got a phone call at midnight from uh, Daniel Clifford, who's another two Michelin star chef and a great friend who rang up and said, um, it was midnight, we were still in the pub, and he said, have you looked online? And I was like, no. He goes, well, you better go and have a, a look then. So uh, we went out and had a look, and uh, yeah, we'd, we won a star, which was amazing. We were so happy. Like, it was it was brilliant. So that moment, it was a huge moment, and I'll always remember Daniel for that because it was incredible being told that you won two stars by Daniel, uh, one star by Daniel, but then going on to win two stars was a big I mean, it's a huge thing. It was a huge thing of team effort and everybody working very hard to just try and get a little bit better every day. And to have broken that mold, I think, for, I think, British food and British cuisine. And when I first started cooking pubs with a laughing stock and then, you know, uh, and then all of a sudden we've made a point of saying, actually, this is a pub and it's got two mission stars. And it, it, it's, it's, it's quite, it, it broke a mold and it was very brave of mission. And I will be like eternally grateful for them for taking that risk and, and that chance but you know for the staff for everybody to put it forward was amazing so it was it was quite a seminal quite special moment not just for us as a team and me personally but actually for british food and british cuisine i think uh, yeah and to show that something's possible that people might not have thought was possible before that's it's so exciting yeah, yeah exactly well, so how did you find out about the second star um somebody turned up with a letter and a camera <laughs> And first thing in the morning, and then they asked if they could film us opening the letter. So it was. Uh, yeah. Oh my god, that's so, yeah, so you, that's yeah. so stressful. Yeah, but you kind of know it's good. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it'd be really not... mean if they sent a camera and they were like, "You haven't got a star." <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, but but at that point, no one else knows what's going on. So it's, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's... Were you still in your pajamas? No, no, no. It was at the restaurant. At the restaurant. Okay. At the restaurant. They didn't yeah. like. No, we don't cook in pajamas at the restaurant. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, the, uh, the dream. Uh, let's talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often. Yeah, that's quite easy. It's an omelette or sausages, Ooh. like maybe omelette and sausages. Nice. Like it, it, my little man loves eggy and he loves sausages. Like he's proper. He's all over the protein. He's a bit like his dad. He loves protein. <laughs> he's also he does keep asking when can he come to the gym. So like oh. yeah, who knows? He might be. How old is he now? Free. Oh. So he might. You know, he might end up off. being. <laughs> it's going to be like an eight-year-old powerlifter. <laughs> oh my goodness, that would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but he's um, omelettes are a real good family go-to one, and and I don't mean like a, a proper friend one where you just roll it like a cigar and dropped into the plate with no color on like michelle rue would love like and they're lovely and amazing i mean throw loads of things in a pan cover it with eggs fill it up with cheese stick it in the oven and bake it and then put that in the middle of the table everyone helps himself and that and that works really nicely it's a real go-to family favorite it's kind of like a frittata 
Yeah, exactly yeah. like that. Yeah, that will be that will be tea this weekend. That yeah. will lunch somewhere. That will be that will that will make an appearance somewhere between between Friday night and Sunday night. That will make an appearance. It's pretty hard to beat, and it's really good for a fridge forage, so you can just use up what you've got. Hundred percent. Yeah, use up what you've got, and and also they're really nice cold as well. If mm. you've put plenty of cheese on the top, that get, yeah, it's really yeah. nice. They're quite so good for breakfast. They are really good for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Mm. Yeah. Um, the Great British Menu. It seems to have been a real turning point in your career in many ways. You went on in 2010 and, I mean, you kind of won it. And that was the beginning. I mean, obviously you were doing amazing things before then, but this was the beginning of this incredible TV career that you've had and the cookbooks. Was that something that you thought about previously? Well, when you run your own business and then you get asked to do a bit of television and it's I mean, everything is, is positive for the business. You've got yeah. to think about the business. And I never dreamt of television being where we'd end up now. Like never. You just go, okay, I'll run my own business. Shall I do Great British Menu? They've asked if I do it. Yeah, come on, let's do it. Let, let, let's have a go at this. Let's let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, if anything, it just gets a name out there and, and people will see it. It's on, it's, you know. You've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose. It's a huge, you know, fan base of people that watch it. And and the, the most beautiful and the best thing about Great British Menu, and it's been such a very, such an important show in the British food team, because what it has done, it regionalized it. So it wasn't just about London centric restaurants that restaurant reviewers would never leave and only write about the great. What it did is it let people know that there's brilliant places in Wales and there's yeah. fantastic things in the Northeast and brilliant and brilliant restaurants in the Midlands or down in the Southwest. Like it really did cover regionally amazing places. So it, it, it was a great show to be a part of. So then to be on it. Yeah. So I went on it on the first year and ended up winning the main course. And then, I went back the second year. They asked me to compete again, which was great. So I went. I went the second year and and I won the main course and again. the pu- and the pudding. Yeah, no, 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 just the main course twice. I've not okay. done pudding. Pudding, oh, puddings okay. are my weak point. I okay. gotta be honest with you. Like it, pudding, pudding, particularly on Great British Menu, they were they were they're the strong points in the restaurants. They're the, they were the weak points on the Great British Menu. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, it's because. So it's quite interesting. We haven't got, I've got a pastry chef in London, but not in Marlow. So no, not of the two star or not of the one star. There's no, there's people that do pastry, but not pastry chefs. So when we decide on changing desserts and what we do, we really have to research and look into them and how to temper chocolate properly, how to do. So there's, it takes a long time to learn the particular skill of individual dishes to get them onto the pastry section so they have to be perfect mm, so it's not just a pastry chef that's making things it's chefs that know how to make things having to enter into a mindset to work them really well and also quite often pastry chefs have a sweet tooth because they spend all day with sugar yes but for me dessert should still taste vanilla should taste of vanilla it shouldn't be vanilla and sugar it, strawberries and blackberries or whatever they are the fruit should taste of what they are so so actually from a chef point of view i think desserts work a lot better from a slightly different mind's eye of of savory chef putting it together. Yeah. However, you do need the skill set of somebody to be able to have an understanding and a passion and a love for it. So we have a pastry chef in London that it, it will eventually end, be group pastry chef, but kind of morphing it all together. But on Great British Menu, when I go on it, pastry, I didn't have the time or the skill set to be able to create dishes that were good enough that ever did very well with desserts. But yeah, that's really, it's, that's really interesting. But it, it, it is such a different kind of cooking, isn't it? So it's sort of, 
it's i mean obviously you are really good at puddings but yeah it's a it, science based it's, yeah, yeah there's no different. you can't freestyle no. pudding, so, so you have to you know it it, it, it it does what it says otherwise it's not going to set or cook or rise or whatever else yeah. whereas, whereas in kitchens things are much more um in a hot kitchen it's a little bit more organic growth like pieces of meat each piece of meat is different each bit of muscle t- sinew or tendon is different and and as it cooks you have to react to it the same as vegetables sometimes they'll contain higher water content so they'll cook in a different way so all of those sort of things it makes it it makes it you have to be much more reactionary in a hot kitchen yeah let's talk a bit about your books the latest one is tom carriage's fresh start and it goes alongside your latest tv show which started last week which is very exciting it's the third sort of healthy eating book you've done, and they've all been these incredible bestsellers and all off the back of this amazing lifestyle change that you've undertaken where over the last five years, you've lost an incredible 12 stone. Are you surprised by the success of this endeavor? Like you've been known to be this, you know, phenomenal Michelin starred chef, and now you're known for delicious, healthy foods. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, it's, again, it's, it's mental, it's bizarre. Like, it's, again, one of those things that I wrote a diet book in the same time that Leicester City won the Premier League. It's like <laughs> something was mental and happening that year. Like, yeah, that was an not, amazing year. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. You just go, it, it wasn't something that you would ever think that you'd ever do. But, I mean, I, I made the decision to change my diet, my lifestyle, because you, you get to an age and you, you, you recognize that you need to make some changes. And it was completely personally. But then what happened is more and more people were asking me how I did it. Every time I bumped into people, television, whatever, you know, it was always being asked how you did it. So the first book that we wrote, the, the dopamine diet one was the, it was a low carb version of it. It's how I lost the weight. I went low carbs and, and I thought, well, if it helps one person, then we do it. And the guys at Bloomsbury were a hundred percent behind it. Let's make it work and let's show people how you know, this is how we did it. And the book did incredibly well because people, there was no television. There was nothing with it. It was just the journey that one bloke who's a few people have seen on the telly has gone through that process. So if I can do like, really, if I can do it and you can do it, like if I can do it, anyone can do it. My life is surrounded by food. It's just making the right choices and the mental set. And then it followed up with the BBC asking if I'd like to do a diet show because obviously like I've lost weight. So it's like, yeah, of course we will. Let's do something. But the lose weight for good one was we, we needed to make it work with, I suppose, the government guidelines of, of how everybody else should be losing weight. Where I isolated a food group, the, the lose weight for good was about to be in lower calorie, which allows you to be everything but within a calorific range. And that was in, within guidance of the NHS and going uh, working with their 12 week diet plan and how it works. So, so we, and I looked at, I looked at low calorie dishes and they were all very dull and very boring and none of them are very exciting and no wonder people stop and change off diets and can't stick it very long so it's like so how do we use our chef skill to try and then turn these low calorie dishes into something very special so we were looking at low calorie dishes all over the place and then trying to enhance them and move them and change them and make them much more chef based and how we how we drive them forward so so yeah so we did that and that was in conjunction with the show where we took 12 people and we said right come on let's go on this weight loss program and see what people can actually do with that heart and soul and encouragement which was great 
And then this one's much more about getting people back to take responsibility for what they eat. It's not a diet book, but it is a book. It has the calorie content in it. But like you say, I mean, you've turned up with some lovely peanut butter I know, brownies, and like, which are amazing. What shall I make Tom yeah, Carrot? Yeah, I'll make him some of his brownies. And they have the calorific content in them. It's, yeah. not, it's not diet food, but it is about you taking responsibility. So if you are watching it, you know how much you're eating there, yeah. which, is, which is a great thing. But it's also about getting people back in the kitchen, taking responsibility, bringing family involved, getting everybody trying to ditch convenience food, trying to make sure that like convenience food isn't bad but it shouldn't be the habit that the habit and the norm should be cooking and yeah. then convenience food should be the treat. It's what you do every day that matters. Isn't it, it? Exactly. A hundred percent. And, and it, it's getting people back into the kitchen to encourage them to do it. And the way you do that is with simple and fresh ingredients and easy cooking methods. And some of them are quick and easy ones to do at home. Some of them are much longer ones that you, all of you can get involved with over a weekend things like batch cooking um, it's tips on structure and organization, which is a big thing so that people's time, time and effort that they put in, they get something back. So that, so yeah, so that book is, you know, it, it's, it's a very exciting book. It's a, it's a great project to be a part of, of trying to encourage more and more people to be cooking at home, just much simpler and lovelier food. And, there's a show that goes with it. And with that show, we've taken eight families who again, go on this 12 week journey with us to see if they can, cook better food lots of them have got caught in the trap of convenience food some of them have got there's a husband in there doesn't even know where the kitchen is there's a, there's <laughs> someone who wants to do it for health reasons there's lots of different yeah lots of different reasons why they want to get back in the kitchen it's, it's Most, also so expensive isn't it to not cook from scratch it is so they all save money and, and they all save money and they all feel fitter happier and healthier is that and it, i like it but and that's just from cooking you know and so how amazing is that the one thing that they have to do is you have to commit and put a little bit of effort into planning and preparation but from that the return again is huge it is a really amazing book so congratulations Tom. thank you very much let's talk about the sixth desert island dish and that's your go-to dinner party dish that's really easy and that's a slow cooked shoulder of lamb like it, uh, on the bone, stuffed with garlic and, and some, maybe some anchovies and loads of dried herbs mixed with olive oil and salt and rubbed on the top and just put in the oven at about 150 degrees and left there for five hours. I like it really is that easy. I mean, that's all you've got to do. And the, because that way you can enjoy being with people, chatting, doing whatever else. You can go and walk the dogs. You can, like, it really is no stress cooking. But you, I mean, just beautiful. Um, buy yourself a really nice shoulder of lamb. Make sure it's on the bone. Stick it in the oven. I mean, it's the easiest thing. Don't try and be posh. Don't try and do too much. Don't try, like, just let the ingredients speak for themselves. Because if you try too hard, that's not impressive for anybody because all you do is you get lost. And then you spend your dinner party evening in the kitchen yeah. trying to create chef-like dishes. You don't want to do that. You want to put stuff down in the middle of the table. People help themselves. That's most definitely the best way. Do you ever get to throw dinner parties? Never. No. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying all no, the best. I was like, this sounds lie. good. Like, but... No, we don't have dinner parties, but we do have, we're quite, uh, we've got, there's quite a few friends with kids at the same sort of age. So we do lots of things together. We'll do barbecues and stuff like that in the summer. We do uh, actually the last meal, uh, actually it was somebody else's turn. So just before Christmas, we went around to their house. We do, we do every now and then we'd probably do every six or eight weeks Sundays around at somebody else's house for lunch. The last one was, it was a full on vegetarian Sunday lunch and I loved every Ooh, minute. Of it. Sounds good. On desert Island dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. What is your most treasured cookbook? It's going to be Marco Pierre White's White Heat. So Ooh. it came out when I was 18 years old. And it was, it was that first book that went from being a textbook style book as a chef that you'd normally, when you read cookbooks, it was all very recipe like. And, and it was all about chefs with tall white hats and 
polished shoes and all of that sort of stuff. And, but actually, Marco's book with the the photographs in it by Bob Carlos Clark were were just phenomenal. These black and white pictures of energy levels, excitement, something that was happening in the kitchen, that vibe, that that level of ex, uh, a, a kind of adrenaline that was being flown through through the pages of the book was amazing. And then there was beautiful pictures of the food, and it and it really captured. There's so many chefs my age that will just go, yeah, Marco Pio, it's why he is that that is the book, that's the cookbook. I didn't know whether you're going to pick one of that one of his or whether you're going to go with Adelia. I know you're a could have been a Delia. It could have been a Delia. I'm a big Delia fan. I think she's amazing. And like my mum yeah. cooked a couple of dishes from there. Like I remember my mum's Delia cookbooks being covered in like grease and gravy and flour and all of that sort of stuff. And that's what cookbooks should be. They should be used. And yeah, so it could have quite easily have been a Delia. But I, I think that's more of a childhood for me. Mum, for me, Marco was the one that was the inspiring for an en- for an energy level and a career. Yeah. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Can I, how long am I on this island for, right? So like, like, I just want to work out, am I ever going to eat anything again, or am I eating this and then I'm like shrinking and dying? Is that it? Is that I'm eating it and then I'm starving to death? Well, it depends how good you are at swimming, and I've heard you're pretty good. I'm all right at swimming, but <laughs> yeah, I'm all right at swimming. Is there fruit on the island? If I've got to live off like fruit and insects yeah. for the rest of my life. I think so. What, I'm not dying here but no. just the last thing i'm gonna eat yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> tom you're asking me questions that i feel like i should know the answer to but i don't know <laughs> um, yeah there are some vegetables yeah and um insects okay and vegetables and insects so, if I, if I'm, so i'm not just going there and starving it's all right no so, okay so it would have to be i mean it would probably be I mean, there are so many such lush things. I mean, we've done. You can have more than probably, a dish. I, I would. I I'd probably have to go with fish and chips. Like it's got to be fish and chips. Like it's a, it's a British amazing, like a me- but beautiful fish as well. Probably. I mean, I mean, if it's the last thing, I'll go with like a piece of turbot deep fried. I, I won't go. I'll, I'll take a step up from cod and haddock, and I'll go with turbot, uh, triple cooked chips. Definitely. Obviously. It's got to have mushy peas, tartar sauce, gravy, and curry sauce. I'll have all of it. I'll have all the above, and I'll have a oh can of lilt with it. A can of lilt. Yeah. I love that. I will definitely give you a, a can of lilt. Thank you. And Tom, thank you so much. Those are your desert island dishes. Thank you, mate. Well, isn't Tom officially the dream? I think Human Sunbeam sums him up pretty well. If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review on iTunes, now is your chance. It really is quick to do and it really helps other people to find out about the podcast, which is obviously great. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura and you can visit the website desertislanddishes.co which has got the full list of episodes, loads of different recipe ideas, kitchen tips and tricks. And I will see you next time. Bye.